Welcome back to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. I'm Kristen Cornett, a holistic nutritionist and functional wellness practitioner at Tiny Feet. And I'm Dr. Haley Knight, a naturopathic doctor and certified nutritionist at Synergy Women's Healthcare in Portland, Oregon. Our goal with this show is to educate and empower couples with the knowledge they need to get pregnant, stay pregnant, and have the healthiest baby possible. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We certainly hope that you're able to find everything that you're looking for here on the podcast. But if you need additional resources to help you on your fertility journey, you definitely have some options for how to learn more from us. If you're looking for personalized one-on-one guidance for your health or fertility struggles, you can learn more about working remotely with me, Kristen, by visiting my website at tinyfeet.co, or you can schedule a free 20-minute phone consult right now through the link in the episode description. If you're local to the Portland, Oregon area, you can learn more about seeing Dr. Haley in person at her clinic by visiting drhaley.com. We've also created an online course together called Fertile in Five Masterclass, which walks you through everything you need to know to prepare for a healthy pregnancy. Visit bit.ly forward slash fertile in five to learn more about the course and get signed up. If you'd like to get a free preview of what you can expect in the Fertile in 5 course and learn all about the most important nutrients and supplements to include in your preconception and pregnancy routine, you can sign up for the free mini course called How to Choose the Best Prenatal Supplements, and the link to enroll is in this week's episode description. You're listening to episode 67, where we dive into what's considered normal in conventional medicine versus what's optimal in functional medicine when it comes to fertility hormone testing. Although it's common for doctors to test hormone levels, at least in women, after a couple struggles to conceive for more than six or 12 months, depending on age, there's a lot more to hormone testing than just making sure that you fall within the lab reference range for each test. A functional perspective looks at what levels provide the best chance of conceiving and caring to term for a couple, not just whether it's possible to get pregnant naturally based on their numbers. So in this episode, we're going to teach you a whole lot more about optimal hormone levels for both men and women, including which tests should be considered in a fertility evaluation and what each test is used for, when each test should be completed during a woman's cycle, the functional ranges for FSH, LH, estradiol, AMH, progesterone, testosterone, DHEAS, and TSH, and other options for evaluating hormones in the context of fertility aside from just single sample blood testing. You can find show notes for today's episode on the Tiny Feet website through the link in this week's episode description. All right, so let's jump in and get started. Dr. Haley is going to start us off with our first hormone discussion, which is going to be on estradiol or estrogen. Great, great. Thank you, Kristen, so much. So the first thing that we want to talk about is estradiol. So estrogen is made in our ovaries, as most women, I hope, know that. And it's going to drive the development of follicles in the first half of your cycle. And so it's actually as follicles get um, larger than the more estrogen they start to create. Um, And then estrogen is also going to signal that LH surge or the luteinizing hormone that um, happens in the about mid cycle to support ovulation or trigger the ovulation. 
Um, and there's a couple other things that estrogen does. It thickens the lining of your uterus, and then it's also going to influence your cervix to make fertile cervical mucus around the time of ovulation. So as you can tell, it's really important to fertility and obviously overall hormonal health for a woman. Now, the best time to measure estrogen is going to be on day three of your cycle. You can also um, do it between day two and four, but really day three is optimal. And that just helps give us a way to have a universal um, congruity. Congruity is that a word? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, continuity is the word. There you go. <laughs> thinking of around uh, serum blood testing among practitioners and reference ranges um, because estrogen fluctuates so much throughout the menstrual cycle. So if, um, if you get a test on day three, most reference ranges, um, obviously different labs are going to have different reference ranges just depending on the method that they're using to test estradiol. Uh, but typically the reference range is anywhere between 27 and 156 picograms per milliliter. And so that's a pretty wide range. <laughs> and 156 is pretty high. Yeah, that's pretty high. Um, and so we actually, uh, in functional medicine have a more optimal range when it comes to testing estradiol. And the optimal range is below 45 picograms per milliliter. And, um, uh, and of course there's going to be a lower limit to that too, but so anywhere between that kind of 27 range to less than 45. And the reason why that's important is because we're always testing estradiol with follicular stimulating hormone or FSH. And we use the two measurements together to make a, um, a diagnostic decision um, at that point of what your ovarian reserve is going to look like. Um, and so Kristen can explain a little bit more about follicular stimulating hormone um, because again, these two come in a pair when you're wanting to get these hormones tested. Yeah. So um, FSH is actually not an ovarian hormone. It's actually made in the brain and it's a hormone that communicates with the ovaries and tells them to start developing those follicles. So if FSH is measuring too high, it can indicate that your brain is actually having to like talk really loud to your ovaries to get them to respond. So that can be an indication that your ovaries um, are not producing hormones at the level that we might want them to. They're not responding to the brain's signal to produce estrogen and grow a follicle. Um, and so that can be caused by a number of different things, but that happens naturally as we age and women start to go into menopause. If it's happening much earlier than that, then we might need to be looking deeper into the root cause of that from a fertility perspective. Um, so it a higher FSH, especially if estradiol is also looking either really low or really high, that can be a sign um, of diminished ovarian reserve or just that our ovaries aren't functioning as well or we don't have the egg reserve that we used to. Um, so if estradiol is greater than 50 picograms per milliliter and FSH is normal, that can also be a sign of diminished ovarian reserve. And that's why these two should always be measured together, like Dr. Haley mentioned. 
So for what's considered a normal range in conventional medicine, like Dr. Haley mentioned, the reference ranges for each lab are going to vary a little bit. But technically, anything between 3 and 20 picograms per milliliter is going to be considered normal for FSH. Uh, but of course, in functional medicine, uh, we consider a much tighter range, uh, lower range to be more optimal for fertility. So optimal is below 9. Um, and really, if we can get that number 6 or lower, that, that really has... Um, the best chance, the, the highest likelihood of a healthy natural conception. And if FSH is above 15, um, functionally, that has a much lower likelihood of a natural conception. So these two definitely are a package deal. These are probably the two that are most commonly measured upfront for women in conventional medicine. Um, so these, most of you, if you've been struggling with fertility for a while, you've gone in for an evaluation, you've at least had these two tests done. Yeah. And something with the FSH that I do want to mention is that it can fluctuate from cycle to cycle. And so it's really important not to just take one number and make some type of diagnose, diagnosis off of that number. Mm -hmm. um, each follicular cohort um, is going to be different and they're going to respond a little bit differently. It depends on how many uh, primordial follicles were recruited into that cohort and how, you know, it, it definitely depends on lifestyle, stress, everything that's affecting that particular cohort. So from one cycle to the next, you might have an F and FSH that was say 15, like super borderline, not looking so great. And then the next cycle, maybe you make some lifestyle changes and um, less stress that next cycle. And then your FSH comes back at nine. And so it is important to take several measurements. I would say at least two, if not like three or four, maybe every other cycle, um, especially if you are actively working on your health, um, maybe working with a functional uh, practitioner and doing a lot of changes, then I would definitely have it retested and of course do it with the estradiol. Yes, for sure. I think a lot of women, they, they get one value back on these tests and their doctors might look at it a little bit doom and gloom without doing additional assessment. Um, and I think a, a lot of doctors still believe that FSH really only goes in one direction. Like it's, it's really only going to go up and things are only going to get worse as you get older, but there's a lot of hope for how things can change with your hormones. And we've had several episodes well, and what's interesting about that. about that. Yeah. What's interesting about that is the research absolutely does not support the fact that FSH goes in one direction. That's just completely not supported. It, yeah. The only thing the research is showing is that it just fluctuates um, cycle to cycle. And the older that you get, the more that this is true. And so if you're uh, trying to conceive and you're over the age of say 38, um, then your FSH is going to fluctuate even more because cycle to cycle, your hormones are fluctuating even more. You're going to have more variability with those follicular co cohorts. And you may have uh, one cycle where it just doesn't look so great. And then the next cycle looks much better. And so hormones are a little bit less reliable the older that you get. Yeah, it's a fair point. So why don't you jump into our next one, which is another common one measured um, in the early cycle to assess fertility, and that's luteinizing hormone or LH. Yeah, luteinizing hormone. So I mentioned that a little bit earlier. That is going to be the hormone that's released by the pituitary gland in your brain. And it's the brain's direct signal to trigger ovulation. Um, so it's going to transform those cells in your ovary, um, that the granulosal cells that are making estrogen, 
um, within the uh, follicular or follicle and uh, it transforms those cells into the corpus luteum which is left behind after ovulation and makes progesterone so it's a really beautiful process um, with LH, uh, again, I mentioned estradiol as those follicles grow, it's going to start triggering that rise in LH and then mid-cycle it's going to spike and that big spike in hormone is what's going to trigger that ovulation or that egg coming out of that follicle. So um, with luteinizing hormone, um, it usually is tested directly with FSH and one of the main reasons we want to test it with FSH on day three is to see what the ratio is gonna be like. Um, so if you're not ovulating or you sus have suspected PCOS, usually that ratio is gonna be a little off. Um, that means that you're gonna have a higher FSH in comparison to FSH. And um, that can give us an indication that you may be having some anovulatory cycles or dealing with PCOS. So um, the reference range on that is a normal reference range on day three is anywhere between two and 15 milli IUs per milliliter. And an, an optimal, excuse me, optimal range on day three is going to be less than seven. So that's quite a bit different than the actual normal range. Yeah. Well, and like you said, also dependent on where FSH is at. So, you know, let's say FSH is five and LH is still optimal, but it's seven, you know, that, that might indicate that there could be an issue with ovulation or that, that you might be presenting a little bit more yeah. toward a, a PCOS type of picture. Yeah, exactly. So um, it says, you know, any, any level higher, uh, LH level that's higher than FSH. So just like Kristen was saying, like if... Um, if LH is at seven, but your FSH is at five, then even that still is, is an indication that you might um, be dealing with anovulation or PCOS diagnosis. So that one you definitely wanna do together. Now, do you have to do LH every time that you are testing your day three hormones? Um, no, there's oftentimes that I don't or order it if I know for a fact that that woman is ovulating and she shows, shows no signs of PCOS, then I won't order it. Um, so it, it depends. It, it really, I don't think it's that much more like expensive or um, trouble to order it. So you may want to just request it and make sure that it's done, even if you don't think that that's something that you're dealing with. Yep. Good point. Yeah, so the next one we're gonna talk about is one of my favorite hormone tests, and that's anti-malarian hormone, or AMH. And so Kristen's gonna tell us a little bit more about that one. Yeah, and you can jump in on this one too. Um, but AMH is a test that we use to assess ovarian reserve. And it was interesting because we talked about this a couple of weeks back when we had Dr. Anna Kabeca on the podcast and we were talking about using AMH to come to a potential diagnosis of DOR or POA. And at the time that she was going through you know, med school and residency, AMH wasn't really included in the assessment of that. So technically FSH and estradiol are enough for a conventional medical provider to make that diagnosis, but AMH can really help um, kind of flesh that out a little bit more and, and see what else might be happening with egg reserve. So 
what AMH is, it's a hormone that's produced in the granulosa cells of developing follicles. So it increases when we have more follicles that are in development, as well as when those follicles that are in development are healthier, that AMH number is going to be a bit higher. So that tells us like how many of those follicles are getting ready to ovulate within the next few months and how healthy are those follicles. So it's measured in nanograms per milliliter. And AMH, an AMH above two has a good prognosis for pregnancy. An AMH between one and 1.9 is kind of indeterminate. And an AMH below one has a poorer prognosis. This is also um, one of those hormones that has more specific reference ranges for age. So um, I'm not going to read off all these numbers because it's a little <laughs> intense, but like the, the three that I just mentioned, like above two is a good prognosis. One to 1.9 is you know, indeterminate and less than one is a poor prognosis, but there's also specific um, normal and optimal ranges based on age. So like as an, a couple of examples, like an age for age 20 to 29, normal in conventional medicine is considered anywhere from like 0.76 to 11.34. Um, that's obviously a hugely wide reference range um, for- yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about that because yeah. I just saw uh, a patient who's 22 years old who's been trying to get pregnant for a year, and uh, it does look like she's has an ovulatory cycles or roughly PCOS maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're still like, well, she doesn't have the perfect signs, you know, the um, uh, everything that PCOS would, would come with per se, but let's just run some tests. And I did her AMH and her AMH came high 11. Yeah. That's high. <laughs> Every, everything else was normal. Like did not show that she had PCOS symptoms, but an AMH of 11 is actually pretty high. And what mm -hmm. that means is that, um, she is, is probably has polycystic ovaries. And so mm -hmm. the next step that I'm going to do for her is send her for an ultrasound just to see if she has polycystic ovaries. Now, remember she's young, so she's 22. And so a lot of young women do have polycystic ovaries and that's actually not an issue and they can get pregnant, no problem. Um, but for her, we just need to see how many cysts she's actually experiencing because she does have all the signs and symptoms of not ovulating on a monthly basis. Right. And so that's obviously going to impede her ability to get pregnant. So yeah. And this is a situation. Yeah, yeah. That's a situation where FSH and LH might be able to tell you a little bit more about like, Hey, what's going on in the brain? Like, why are we recruiting so many follicles so early on that may not be actually ovulating an egg? And so that's a really good point. And the next thing I was going to mention is that a higher AMH level indicates that we're recruiting a whole bunch of follicles, but those may not all be ovulating. So we might be producing higher levels of AMH and that can point toward a PCOS diagnosis. So that those are kind of the two extremes. If your AMH is really low, that's going to point more toward a diminished ovarian reserve or a POI type of diagnosis. And if your AMH is really high, that points more toward a PCOS type of diagnosis. Yeah. So for comparison's sake, with the, the age range that I mentioned before, you know, the 0.76 to 11.34, for a similar age range, we consider what's optimal to be above 3.2. Um, and so obviously there's a high, there's going to be an upper limit um, for what's optimal. And so, you know, if it's getting above like probably I don't know, five to seven in that age range, I would be, I would be a little bit concerned, especially if she had other signs and symptoms of a possible PCOS diagnosis. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I also want to mention that AMH is similar to FSH in a way where it does change and fluctuate. Again, you got to remember that there's follicular cohorts that's being recruited every single month. And so each cohort is going to be a little different, just like when you went to high school, you know, like each, each uh, grade school, you know, they have a, their different um, characteristics. And so that means that they're uh, going to respond a little bit differently and your AMH can fluctuate. So if you do get a number that's too low or too high um, that you're just not quite happy with, um, then definitely lifestyle changes, uh, working with a functional practitioner. I mean, all the stuff that you can do uh, naturally can really change that AMH. Um, mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't say really. It can change the AMH, probably not drastically, but enough to where it really does make a difference. So we again, this is something that we don't put a whole lot of weight on when we get a lower AMH. Um, like, you know, below one. Um, now if your AMH is zero, that actually yeah. is uh, pretty like a, poor, that's a poor prognosis. So the chance of you getting a higher AMH when one comes back at zero, isn't very good, but you'll also notice that you'll, your, uh, estrogen will be really low. Your FSH will be really high. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, that's kind of a, um, premature ovarian failure type of, um, diagnosis. So and a lot of women have symptoms that like, right they have quite a few hormonal imbalance symptoms at that point too. So that would probably be something that you'd already maybe started to investigate with your doctor, but it does happen that sometimes these, these hormone levels come back and they're a surprise to some women. And one more thing I want to mention with AMH is that a low AMH, you know, if, if it's not zero, it doesn't necessarily mean like there's no possible way you can get pregnant. It's just lower likelihood of natural conception, especially per cycle. Um, and doctors also use this to determine what your response might be to stimulatory medication during assisted reproductive technology. So the lower your AMH is, the less likely you are to be a good responder to stimulation meds during something like an IVF cycle or a medicated IUI. And so a lot of times FSH, estradiol, and AMH taken together, if that picture isn't looking that great, that might be an indication that your doctor may not want to do IVF for you. Um, and if you listen back to, we did an episode, an interview with Anna Rapp, um, who runs a um, fertility blog as well as a Facebook group. And she had exactly that picture, you know, high FSH and a really low AMH. And they were like, yeah, we're not going to do IVF for you because it doesn't look like it's going to be successful. She ended up making a ton of diet and lifestyle changes and doing a lot of mind body work and got pregnant with two kids naturally after they told her there was absolutely no way that she was going to get pregnant with her own. Yeah. So not saying that's going to be everyone's story, but you know, these, these are not, uh, it's not all doom and gloom if these numbers don't right. come back quite like you want. Um, and then I don't, AMH is typically measured at the beginning of, like, if you're going to do it, you'd probably do it along with the day three hormones as well. Yeah. But surprisingly, you can do AMH anytime during the cycle. Yeah. Which is nice. So that brings us to our next hormone, which is progesterone. And My we second are, favorite. yeah, well, this, this should be like everyone's favorite. Cause it's, I think it's one of the most commonly dysregulated ones. And we're really excited because we have an awesome episode. That's going to be more focused on progesterone coming yeah. up next month. So yeah. uh, Dr. Haley, tell us more about progesterone. Good. Okay. So progestation, progesterone, that is our pregnancy hormone. And 
like I mentioned a little bit earlier, is um, the luteinizing hormone is going to switch those granulosa cells into the corpus luteum, and the corpus luteum is what's left over after you ovulate, and that um, is a gland that makes progesterone for us. And so it's a key hormone to our fertility. And um, it can last up to 14 days until you start your period. And so that a normal, this is what's called your luteal phase, your second half of your cycle um, or your moon phase. And it's um, can last anywhere from 12 to 14 days. So anything that's less than 12 days, if you're having an 11 day cycle or a 10 day cycle, that's considered luteal phase defect. And that can be caused by many different reasons. Um, but one of the main reasons is, um, or the cause basically of the defect is that you're not producing enough progesterone. So that corpus luteum is a little sluggish. It's deciding to retire a little bit earlier. It's, you know, it's done. Um, and then you might experience some spotting beforehand um, before you actually start your period, which can indicate low progesterone, your temperatures, if you're measuring your basal body temperatures are going to start dropping sooner than you want them to. And then your period comes a little bit earlier than normal. So that's obviously not an ideal situation for pregnancy. And we're going to talk all about that in this next upcoming episode, um, this next month that Krista mentioned. So as far as measuring, um, progesterone, uh, Doctors get this wrong all the time. It drives me bonkers. Uh, you cannot measure progesterone just any time during your cycle. And let's just uh, be real logical about this right now because the first half of your cycle, you don't have a corpus luteum and you don't make progesterone. So you can't just measure your progesterone willy-nilly because that just you don't make progesterone in the first half of your cycle. If you ovulate, so that's another indicator, like you also can't just test progesterone if you're not ovulating. I mean, that is a way that you can figure out if you're not ovulating, I guess. So that would be, I mean, that's a really common way of testing progesterone, but you have to yeah, do it at a certain time in your cycle. So the second half of your cycle, once you figure out when you've ovulated, then you'd want to test progesterone ideally seven days after you, um, you ovulate. And so with testing with the doctor, um, most of the time they'll test anywhere between day 19 and 21 if you have a regular 28-day cycle. Mm -hmm. And so um, most women, well, and I just mentioned that if you have a luteal phase defect, you can ovulate, let's say, day 15 or 16 and still have a 28-day cycle, and then you're still going to catch it on the wrong day. So what we like to do is, first of all, figure out when you're ovulating, and you can do that with basal body, body temperatures. Um, you can do that um, by using an OPK kit. That's like a pretty easy way of doing it. You can do it by cervical mucus. Um, you can use an app, which aren't totally accurate. Um, I like using more of your body temperatures or cervical mucus to figure it out. But then seven days later, you do your blood test. Um, so doing your blood test usually again, uh, or another way you could do it is, um, I was just thinking of this is if you have, if you know, your cycle is like 30 days every month, um, your total cycle, you could subtract seven days from that 30 days or seven or eight days would be fine. And you can actually do your 
blood test on like say day 22 or 23. And that probably also would be accurate as well. So um, a normal mid-luteal number for progesterone uh, conventional reference range is 4.44 to 28.03. Very specific. <laughs> Funny. Um, and that's nanograms per milliliter. Now, optimal um, in functional medicine is we like to see it over 15 nanograms per milliliter, to and that's been associated with the best pregnancy outcomes. And anything over five nanograms per milliliter is, a re is reasonable assurance that ovulation has occurred. That means that you are making progesterone because you did ovulate and you created a corpus luteum to do so. Um, if it's anywhere between five and 12, your numbers, then that's on the lower side. I see a lot of women that come back with their progesterone levels right between 10 and 12. Mm -hmm. um, so it means that they've ovulated, but that's a little sluggish. And <laughs> I am um, under my, my theory is that, um, and we know this by research is that chronic stress or uh, situational stress or chronic stress, or if we just have like kind of that type A personality um, really does a number on your progesterone production. So Great. it will block progesterone. <laughs> Both Krista and I, <laughs> unfortunately, are very familiar with this. We shouldn't even be giggling because it's an actual real big deal, but. Well, yeah, it's not funny, but uh, well, and I just, I also want to mention that there are other things that can cause stress in your body, such as yeah. like, physical stressor, like chronic food sensitivities. I swear this contributes just as much to low progesterone in a lot of women as, really? like, yeah. as psychological stress does. And there are some really interesting things. We're actually going to be talking about this here pretty soon on another upcoming episode, so I won't spoil it all, but um, there is such a thing as progesterone resistance, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. Like your uterine lining is actually uh, like resistant to progesterone's message. And that can be caused by inflammation and that can be caused by a lot of different things. But one of the things is the microbiome in the uterus. So I won't give away any more than that. Um, but that that's really interesting too. So like, even if your blood test comes back normal for progesterone, like you, you do need to make sure that you have like a good curious practitioner that can kind of put the pieces together. If you have all the signs and symptoms of low progesterone, but your blood test comes back normal. Um, and then the other thing is that what's really important about your progesterone is not just a single measurement, but also like, is it staying high throughout the luteal phase? And that's totally. kind of one of the failings of um, single sample blood testing is that we don't see the pattern of what's going on. Like the menstrual cycle is really complex and there's a lot of things going on, different hormones fluctuating at different times to create this really beautiful dance that, that we know is our, our fertile menstrual cycle. Um, so there are some drawbacks to doing single samples, um, but that's what's used in conventional medicine. That's what most women are getting. And so that's kind of what we're focusing on in this episode. But ideally it would be better to figure out like what's happening with your progesterone all throughout that luteal phase. Cause you could do a seven days post ovulation test and then your progesterone tanks on day eight after ovulation or day nine, um, and you're still ending your luteal phase early, you could still have a luteal defect, luteal phase defect and test fine seven days post ovulation. So it's important yeah. to know when to investigate further, even if it looks okay on a blood test. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it, uh, like Kristen was saying, it does have to do with signs and symptoms. Um, so, uh, proficient practitioner that understands what the signs and symptoms of low progesterone would be 
would actually take that way more into consideration than they would just as a number on a on a lab sheet. For sure. Cool. Do we do we cover it all with progesterone? There's like a million things. <laughs> There's a million things to say about this topic, which is why I mean, we do have a progesterone focused episode. We did one, I think it was back in episode 25. We did one with Amy Beckley, who's the founder of Proof yeah. Test, which is one of the products that has been created to try to give us a better sense of what progesterone is doing throughout the luteal phase, which is a really cool, really cool thing. Um, it's testing metabolites in urine, which is not the same thing as testing actual uh, progesterone. You can really only do that through saliva and through serum your blood testing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Moving on. Cool, cool test to, to get. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to learn more about the test, go, go listen to that episode. Uh, is it your turn? Is it it might be my turn. I don't know. We're on DHEAS or DHEA. Well, why do you go for it? Yeah. So uh, the next one is DHEA or DHEA sulfate. Um, most of the DHEA in the body is in the DHEAS. I'm going to say this wrong like so many times on so we talk about this. Um, it's in the sulfate form. Um, so that's that's one of the better ways to measure this in blood. But DHEA is a precursor hormone that can be turned into all of your other sex hormones. So progesterone, testosterone, uh, it's a precursor to your estrogens. DHEA is a common supplemental hormone that's given to women when their hormones are showing up low. And it can be really effective to support um, egg quality, especially in older women, but it's always a good idea to measure it to find out whether or not you actually need supplementation uh, for egg quality. So deficiency of this particular hormone can lead to low testosterone, and it can also be a major driver of poor egg quality, like I just mentioned. So really good idea to have this measured as a part of your hormone testing. This is another one that can be measured any time in your cycle. So you don't need to do this one um, you know, super lined up with, with a particular time in your cycle. This can just be done anytime. So like if you're doing general, what I'll, a lot of times what I'll do for clients is when they come to me new and they're not at a time in their cycle where they can immediately do a day three or a seven days post ovulation, but we want to just kind of get started on some of the hormone testing. I'll do like general health labs and I'll add like a DHEAS and a testosterone, maybe a prolactin if I suspect that that might be an issue. And I think is that on our list to talk about today too? Prolactin? No. Oh, it's not. Okay. Well, we might have to have another episode about that one. It's, it's more um, relevant when you suspect a woman is not ovulating as a potential cause. Um, so as far as a normal reference range in conventional medicine for DHEAS, normal would be between like 57 and 279. Uh, what is that? What is that? Like nanograms per deciliter or micrograms per deciliter? Yeah, it's a little U. Oh my gosh, how do you say that? The little U is the. Isn't that, it's like a micro. macro, or not micro. It's like a a milligram or something. It's re- very small. <laughs> I thought it was micro. This is embarrassing <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's very small. Okay, ignore us. Fifty-seven to two seventy-nine uh, is a normal reference range. Optimally, though, we like to see this a little bit higher for egg quality purposes, but not like overly high. So the upper end of the range is the same optimally at that 279, but that lower limit functionally um, would be 120. 
So seeing it somewhere in there, and if someone is, if a woman is at the upper end of this DHEAS number and also has signs and symptoms of elevated androgen hormones, or we're also measuring testosterone and seeing that on the higher end, that might be a case where we would look into elevated testosterone, elevated androgens, and you know, a possible PCOS picture or anovulation. Another example about um, DHEA-S <laughs> is that I just did a Dutch hormone test um, that uh, samples your dried urine for metabolites of all your hormones and your cortisol levels. And so I just did this for one of my patients and uh, her hormones actually came back pretty low. Her estrogen was really low. Her progesterone was pretty low. So her progesterone was it's the metabolites in the urine, but it came back around six. And so if you remember, we were just talking about progesterone and we want to see it above 15. Um, that's pretty low. And so, um, but her DHEA was, I believe it was like 150 and her testosterone was almost just right in the middle. Um, but DHEA could be a potential treatment option for her to push those other hormones through. Um, so just, I guess I'm giving this example because if the DHEA is normal, um, that doesn't mean like, Oh, you're fine. Like couldn't, you know, you're not going to benefit from DHEA. DHEA is actually really quite important for egg quality. It's been used quite a bit in fertility clinics. And, um, if you're a good candidate for it, and keep in mind, I say good candidate because a lot of women are not good candidates mm-hmm. <laughs> for DHEA, um, then that could be a really good treatment option for those that have chronically low hormones across the board and that can, you know, you can push a little bit more hormone production uh, with that. And also looking for root cause of low hormones as well. Um, and that's, you know, something that functional testing can, can get a little bit more specific on what might be driving that. Um, you know, a lot of times there's a, a brain to ovaries or brain to adrenal glands communication issue that might be happening you know, some psychological or situational stress, some more internal stressors, chronic infections, food sensitivities, things like that. So of course, you know, providing the supports that are needed to help a woman feel better and boost fertility, but also making sure that we're looking into the root cause of what, what might be driving low hormones too. Yeah. Well, DHEA is also a, a, you know, you think of it as kind of like supporting adrenal glands, um, which Mm -hmm. produces DHEA in the first place. And Mm so, um, and you, just like you were saying, Kristen, supporting that uh, HPA axis, which is your hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis. And, and that's basically just your communicate, your endocrine communicating pathways that makes everything run smoothly and make sure that you're making enough hormones. And so when there's a glitch in that system, um, you can, yeah, you can support the adrenals, but you'll also want to support the whole axis. Um, which is a whole nother topic. I think we actually mentioned that a little bit with Dr. Kevin Oberoi when we had the PCOS. Did she talk about the HPA axis or did we, we or is that a whole nother topic we need her to have her back on? Uh, for? Maybe, uh, <laughs> but we you know we talked about HPA. We've talked about HPA access a couple of times on the podcast in different episodes because it's applicable to so many different topics. Yeah. Um, so off the top of my head, I can't think of like a really good, robust discussion that we had about it in any specific episode, but it is peppered in there um, in different episodes, especially when we're talking about hormones and drivers of hormonal dysregulation. Your adrenal glands are part of your endocrine system and 
that if, if something is off with one endocrine gland or the brain's communication with one endocrine gland, that can drive dysfunction in all of the other endocrine hormones, or you might see dysfunction more in one area specifically as opposed to another. Um, so it, it's all connected. And that's the important thing to, to understand with this stuff. And so, you know, looking for that root cause at the same time as you support the, the presentation, which might be low hormones, support that and then look for what's driving it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about testosterone. Uh, there's total testosterone, there's free testosterone. So we're going to talk a little bit about both, uh, total testosterone. Uh, first of all, just testosterone in general is a critical hormone, not just for men. All right. We always hear about testosterone in men, but it's also very important for women. Uh, testosterone naturally declines with aging, unfortunately, and it is one of the important drivers, uh, that happens the, with declining egg quality. So a lot of people don't, um, necessarily link declining testosterone and DHEA levels with egg quality. Um, but that definitely is the case for women. And if we can slow that down or help support the testosterone and DHEA levels in the body, then we can try to help preserve fertility a little bit longer for women. Uh, a normal, Total testosterone level is anywhere between 8 and 60 nanograms per deciliter. And an optimal level is much higher than that. It's at 32.2 to 60. So we like to see it right there, smack dab in the middle, uh, middle of the reference range or a little bit higher. Now, testosterone is one of those hormones that you don't want to have too high. If it's too high, that can, again, indicate PCOS type of symptoms or diagnosis, and it can actually throw off your follicular development. Um, now, free testosterone, Kristen, I'm just going to talk about this real quick because I'm Do talking it. about testosterone anyway. Um, now, the difference between total and free testosterone is pretty clear on what it actually, like I'm saying, is that there's... Um, a sex hormone binding globulin in the body. And that is exactly what it says is it binds sex hormones. And if, um, it can fluctuate a lot and in some people it can actually be a bit higher. And so even if your total testosterone comes back normal, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's free and that it's doing its job in the body. It means it could be bound up on that sex hormone binding globulin and not able to actually do its job. And so um, we always want to do a free testosterone as well, because then that means that's the type of, um, that's the free floating testosterone that's actually able to do its job in the body. Um, now, one thing with sex hormone binding globulin is if you're on hormonal birth control, it's going to drive that sex hormone binding globulin up in the body and um, bind up a lot of your hormones. Okay. Um, and so that might take a while for when you get off of hormonal birth control to come back down to a reasonable range. Um, and so you always want to, again, if you're doing, if you're coming off of hormonal birth control, you'll want to do total testosterone and free testosterone. And then another um, uh, syndrome, so the PCOS, again, we have to bring that up again, is really driven by free testosterone in the body. And so that's um, another type of syndrome that if you're suspecting that, that you'll want to get total testosterone and free testosterone to see what's actually free, 
bloating in the body, um, PCOS tends to have lower sex hormone binding globin. So you have more free testosterone in the body that can, again, do um, some damage to the ovaries and not allow for proper follicular um, development. Okay. Did I explain that okay? I think you did. Yeah. Anything you want to add? (laughs) Just the reference range. Yep. Okay. So that reference range for free testosterone is much lower. So it's going to be anywhere from 0.3 to 1.9. That's the conventional reference range. And surprise, functional reference range is actually the same. (laughs) That's, I think, the only one that is the same. So um, yeah, you want to have it within that range. If it's going to be higher above that range, then again, think of more like PCOS type of picture. If it's lower than that, think like hormonal birth control or that your sex hormone binding globulin is being driven up for some reason. You got to figure that out. Cool. Just uh, as a side note, the UG is micrograms. Oh, micro. See, I was close. Well, so like the, I think I said milligrams or something. Yeah. Well, so the sign for micro is like a Greek mu, um, which Mm -hmm. it's harder to type. So the U just looks better, is easier to type out for. So you don't have to have special characters in the reference range. So just so everyone knows when we were kind of waffling on that on the DHEAS, that is micrograms. All right, so the last hormone that we're going to talk about for women, and then we're probably going to breeze through the men's reference ranges really quickly um, for really some of the same hormones, because a lot of these same hormones are what we measure in men as well. Like we don't think of testing FSH and LH for men, but um, they actually do produce FSH and LH, and those are important to their semen quality. But the last one for women is TSH. And this is just one tiny snapshot of what should be a full thyroid panel run, particularly if you're investigating infertility. But TSH is often that initial screening that doctors will do to determine whether or not there might be an issue with the thyroid that could be driving issues with fertility or recurrent miscarriage, which is another risk um, with low thyroid function. So with TSH, that is basically the brain communicating with the thyroid gland to produce its T4 and T3 hormones. And this should be run, at least the TSH should be run on every woman trying to conceive. We are advocating for a full thyroid panel for all women, just because we think it's so, so much more than TSH and it's so important to the whole process. Um, Also, TPO antibodies, anti-TPO or thyroid peroxidase antibodies are another good one to have measured as well, since those being elevated even on their own do increase the risk of miscarriage and fertility issues. And that is basically a marker of thyroid autoimmunity. So anti-TPO basically identifies whether or not your body is mounting an immune attack on your own thyroid gland. Um, So TSH and anti-TPO can provide an interesting picture of what may be happening with the thyroid gland, especially in cases of unexplained infertility or recurrent loss. So the reference range, a normal reference range for TSH in conventional medicine is pretty broad. um, And this is really problematic, actually. I'm I'm seeing a lot of this in my current practice, like, oh, my doctor said my TSH was normal. Uh, The normal reference range is 0.4 to 4 milli IUs per mil. Um, and an optimal TSH range is 0.4 to 2.5 milli IUs per mil. So the difference between 2.5 and 4 might not seem like a big difference, um, but when we're dealing with small numbers like this, it is a pretty significant difference, and it can have a big impact on how a woman feels. Most women in my practice feel best between 1 and 2 for their TSH. So when we're getting up toward four or even higher, some reference ranges go all the way up to five. Um, You know, women typically don't feel as good. They're having symptoms of low thyroid function. 
depression, feeling cold, weight gain, hair loss, um, you know, that they just usually don't feel good at a TSH that high, but it can still be considered normal in conventional medicine. And then for the TPO antibodies, it's typically um, anything under 35 milli IUs per mil is considered normal in conventional medicine. Functionally, I prefer to see them at zero, um, but if they're under nine, uh, that's usually a pretty good indication that there's not anything really serious going on with the thyroid gland in terms of an autoimmune response. But ideally, I'd like to see them at zero. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, just a, a quick note on the anti-TPO antibodies conventionally, they actually did just change their reference range, or at least LabCorp did, to uh, under nine, nine or above nine or under, sorry. Um, I just actually had mine done <laughs> and they were at 38. Which oh, well, you, I mean, so having, having Hashimoto, but that's like, that's a lot better than, you know, having them at 600. That's actually which, really good. Like, yeah, um, so for Hashimoto's. I'm going to be trying to conceive here in, you know, next couple months. And I actually feel pretty good with that number. So, and obviously yeah. I'm, I'm on uh, thyroid medication at this time. So I feel like that's pretty well controlled. Um, but yeah, they did change the reference range to where now it's more, um, it's going to be positive if it's 10 or higher. So I'm getting ready to remeasure my thyroid panel and my antibodies. I have not had antibodies retested in a while. It's actually my thyroglobulin that's elevated for me, not my TPO. So that's interesting and an important thing to note. And that is like a whole other episode. And we actually do have an entire episode all about the thyroid, which I believe mm -hmm. is episode 39. So if you want to know more about the thyroid panel, why it's important to measure the whole thing, uh, definitely check that out for a more lengthy discussion on that topic. Okay, quickly, we're going to go over the men's tests. Um, I know that this is really important for those of you trying to conceive. You got to make sure your guy has enough uh, testosterone and some other hormones that we're going to discuss. So the first one I'm going to talk about is total testosterone. And of course it comes with free testosterone too. And so we already talked a lot about testosterone and how that affects egg quality. Uh, for men, you know, it's their main hormone. It's going to help them feel strong, healthy, and of course drive their, uh, their set, their libido, their sex drive. And that's clearly important for having a baby. So and their sperm count. Yeah, and their sperm count. Yes, it's quite important. So testosterone naturally declines with an aging male, um, but uh, treatment is geared towards bringing the levels back up. So um, luckily, there's some really good treatment out there. And if you know testosterone is on that lower side, you may want to consider getting treatment for that. Uh, the normal levels for a total testosterone is 250 to 1100 nanograms per milliliter. And for um, functional ranges, uh, let's just go with age. So these are divided up by ages. Um, age 25 to 45, which is going to primarily be a lot of the male partners, is anywhere from 600 to, to 900 nanograms per deciliter. Um, so 600 versus 250, it's quite a big difference. I know a lot of my ND colleagues um, usually start treating if it's um, below 500. So, um, but for fertility, uh, the optimal range is even higher than that at 600. So consider that when you're getting tested. And just one quick note before you move mm -hmm. on, when we say treat, the 
below 500, that does not mean in a fertility setting that you treat with testosterone. You don't do that right. in fertility. You do not give exogenous testosterone. That's a really, really good. That good does, some that doctors does the opposite. Do yeah. Treat with testosterone because they're, un, they're not well versed on the fact that actual testosterone hormone is going to make your sperm counts worse. Yeah. Which seems um, counterproductive, but that is what happens. And um, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. It's really quite interesting, isn't it? But yeah, that that's not the way you want to go. Um, and most men, so when they do research on testosterone, most men are feeling their very best when their testosterone is between 600 and 750. So keep in mind that 750 or above that actually can make men start to feel worse. And so this is another hormone where there's a nice um, middle ground between 600 and 750. Now free testosterone is going to be again, free to swim around in your bloodstream. And this is not what's bound to sex hormone binding globulin. And that sex hormone binding globulin can be high or low in men as well. So you want to get a free testosterone too. And a normal free testosterone is going to be, so there's two different types of lab ranges here. So this might be a little confusing for some people. So I'll just give you one lab number, um, but you can look at the reference range when you, whenever lab you use. So this one is 47 to 244 picograms per milliliter. Uh, and then the optimal range for that is going to be between 90 and 225 picograms per milliliter, or that's going to be like 3% of the total testosterone. So maybe that's an easier way to do it is 3% of the total testosterone. Yeah. Before we move on, I just want to mention something. This is, this is another topic of like further investigation required. Like if a man has a lot of the signs and symptoms of low testosterone, but he's actually testing an optimal range, we might want to look at estrogen in those men because it is possible there is a process in the body called aromatization and that can actually start to convert testosterone into estrogen in men. Um, and so that process can be going on and cause symptoms of low testosterone, even if testosterone is fine, or maybe it's like just borderline on the lower end. Um, that's usually driven in men by um, excess belly fat and insulin resistance. Yeah. So that's just a, a note. We actually have a reference range for estradiol testing in men. Oh, so an, an optimal range for estradiol is between 20 and 30 picograms per milliliter. I see a lot of our estradiols come back above 30. So yeah, uh, that is a clear indication that uh, they may need to do some work on like metabolic syndrome type of stuff. And right. Yeah. That's usually diet and lifestyle diet. driven yeah. primarily. I mean, you can use some supplements, um, you know, some aromatase inhibitors to prevent that process from happening, but usually the root cause is, is diet and lifestyle driven. So things like Weight-bearing exercise, resistance training, you know, getting carbohydrate consumption, starch, sugar, alcohol, all those things under control um, are going to help get the estradiol under control. All right. So you want to mention DHEA sulfate for men? Yep. So we already talked about what DHEA sulfate is for, um, can be turned into other sex hormones. It's important to make sure that this is adequate, especially if we're seeing low testosterone because low DHEAS could be a root cause, potential root cause of that. So there are different reference ranges for age in conventional medicine. So the majority of the 
women listening to this are probably going to have partners that are between 22 and 30. Um, and the reference range for that is 85 to 690 micrograms per deciliter. Um, the next reference range, wow, we're missing a 30 to, oh, there it is. It's below that. Okay. And then the 31 to 40 years old is 106 to 464 micrograms per deciliter. Optimal, we just have one reference range for this in functional medicine. So we're actually looking for DHEAS to be between 350 and 490 micrograms per deciliter in men. Yeah, that's quite a bit higher than what any of these other reference ranges are. So yeah. definitely pay attention to that. If you are running an, um, which I do suggest your uh, male doctors to do <laughs> runs. Wow, I mumbled the crap out of that. I do suggest that your man's doctor runs the DHEA test and, um, and use 350 as your cutoff point. Yeah. Even if the doctor disagrees, I would just use that, especially because DHEA sulfate is so important to driving testosterone. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Especially, I mean, if you're seeing those signs and symptoms of low testosterone, you've got a man that might be experiencing excessive levels of stress, HPA access dysfunction. I think the point here is that these need to be kind of looked at together and, and not just taken as like, oh, that's normal. And we write it off. Um, I've noticed that a lot of my clients, I'm like, oh, well, do you have the testing that you just recently got for your male partner? They're like, no, the doctor just said everything was normal. They've never even seen a copy of their labs. So they don't, they don't know. Yeah what the levels are. So always request a copy of your lab work so you can, you can see for yourself and maybe compare to what we've been discussing. Yeah. So Dr. Haley, cover the last two quickly. And then I have a couple of things I want to mention about functional testing before we wrap up. <laughs> okay. So uh, the last two is FSH and LH. Yes, men also make FSH and LH. It's not just a woman hormone. So uh, it does come from the pituitary gland and is uh, doing similar idea of it's driving sperm, spermatogenesis and sperm development and, um, healthy sperm. So the FSH is what's going to uh, signal the brain, um, or signal the testicles to start making sperm. And then the luteinizing hormone, um, is going to be the brain's direct signal to the uh, testicles to manufacture testosterone. So LH is related to testosterone. And so um, if, if the testosterone is low and then the luteinizing hormone is also low, then this may be driven by the brain not sending the message to the testicles to require, and then of course that's gonna require different um, investigation. And then at that point, you know, they need to, make sure that they're with a neuro or a endocrinologist of some kind and figuring out what's going on with the brain and why is it not, you know, uh, sending the, the correct signal to the testes. Uh, reference ranges. So optimal reference ranges. We actually don't have conventional reference ranges for this, which is odd, but anyway, <laughs> the FSH for men is 1.6 to 8. And then for luteinizing hormone, it's 1.5 to 9.3. Now there, I don't, I don't believe, I am a hundred percent sure that there is uh, not some type of ratio thing that you have to look out with men. You also yeah, don't have to do be. this on a certain day of the month or whatever, because they don't cycle. And so right. obviously these tests can be done at any time with men and, um, as far as I know, the, the, the numbers aren't related to any type of 
syndrome or anything like that. You just want to make sure that they're within the reference range. Yeah. I mean, I suppose like a pituitary tumor or something like that could affect these levels potentially. So, I mean, if you're seeing something really wacky, that's probably, there are probably other symptoms happening too. And you would want to speak to a conventional provider. Yeah. If they're sky high, I mean, that's something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's not going to be good. So, you know, the thing for men's hormones is that these are fine to measure in a single sample via blood or serum. Like that's, that's going to be the gold standard for testing um, for men. If, however, there are additional investigations that can be done to just to get a little bit more information. So doing something like a Dutch test, yes, there is a Dutch test for men. Um, and it gives all of the same information that we were talking about earlier that we get on a Dutch test when we do it for women, which is, you know, information about cortisol, cortisol metabolites, how it's breaking down in your body. We also get the information about estradiol. We, we actually do get progesterone levels for men as well. Men do have progesterone. We don't have it on here as a relevant number for fertility because it's, it's really not so much. Um, but it is, it is really helpful to get functional testing done for hormones for both men and women. With women, um, you know, I, I do use the Dutch test in practice, and I have since started looking into um, a different type of testing that allows me to look over the course of the entire cycle. And there's two ways to do that. The Dutch test actually does have a cycling version where you take multiple urine samples over the course of the cycle. So you get a better sense of what estrogen and progesterone are doing throughout the whole cycle. And I want to say there's like 25 urine samples in that Dutch cycle mapping test. Um, So that's an interesting one to do just because the female cycle is such an intricate dance and there's so much going on over the course of these, you know, anywhere from like 24 to 40 something days that a woman could be cycling. And, you know, if we're looking at something like progesterone and we're thinking, hey, there might be something going on over the course of the luteal phase that a single blood test isn't going to tell us, or even just doing a single sample with the Dutch test might not give us all the information that we're looking for. So sometimes doing a cycling test can be a really helpful way to uncover additional issues that might be happening with the cycle. And um, there is also a salivary test that I have started looking into using in my practice that also tracks FSH and LH over the course of the cycle, which is really interesting, as well as salivary levels of estrogen and progesterone. So there's lots of different ways to look into what's going on with hormones. Single sample testing can be a good way to just like look in to see if there's like a really obvious identifiable problem. And this is much easier to like, if you're working with conventional medicine or, you know, clients working with a conventional provider, having the ability to look at and interpret blood testing is really helpful because that's the primary method that conventional doctors use to look into these hormone levels. Um, But doing some of that deeper functional investigation, either tracking over the course of the cycle or doing something like a single sample Dutch test can just give more information about what's happening with hormones and where we might be able to intervene with diet, lifestyle, or supplements to support that whole process and, and make sure that it's working the way that we want it to for fertility. Yeah, definitely. It's really important. Awesome. Well, I think that was a fully informational packed episode. I hope you guys got a lot of information from what we listed out for you. Of course, if you have any questions, then you can text or you can't text Kristen. (laughs) 
You can just personally text her. You can (laughs) email me or you can DM me on Instagram at tinyfeet.co. Email address is info at tinyfeet.co. And we, I'm still collecting questions for future Q&A episodes. We did that a couple weeks ago and you guys loved it. You sent us so many amazing questions. We have a Q&A episode coming up for you. I don't know if it'll be next week, but it might be the week after. Um, and we have just some awesome content to cover for you guys on that episode. Yeah. So thank you so much for sending us so many amazing questions and we will look forward to being back for that. And uh, we will see you here next week.